The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? This episode of Chinese Whispers is slightly different to your usual, because it's not so much about China as it is about China seen through the lens of another important country, India. The fifth largest economy in the world, now with a population larger than China's, is increasingly being seen as an important partner for the West's ability to counter China. It's true that the relationship between New Delhi and Beijing is increasingly fraught, with India having an interest in countering Chinese influence too. And yet, India has its own historical baggage with China and its own interest to protect. These don't always align with Washington's or London's. To join me to unpack some of the complexities here is Avinash Paliwal, an international relations expert at SOAS. His upcoming book is India's Near East, A New History. Avinash, welcome to Chinese Whispers. To start with, how would you describe India and China's relationship in a nutshell? It's a rivalry. It is one of those very deeply fraught relationships in Asia, wherein two powers, two rising powers, believe or have a very strong sense of self in terms of what their place in the world should be, what is their rightful place within Asia, and what are the logical limits of their influence, both material, cultural, and economic, whether it's in Central Asia, whether it's in Southeast Asia, whether it's in the Indian Ocean. So we have seen historically this rivalry play out in multiple collisions in different area issue areas, uh, two powers which are yet to reconcile what their territorial maps actually look like, what their boundaries are, where their political limits really kind of end, right? So I would in a nutshell describe this as a relationship which is fraught, but one where both sides have also demonstrated considerable maturity in the past mm. to manage these differences using diplomatic means. And for most part of their history, if you look at it, they have actually resorted to diplomacy over war. And right now, the fundamental drive, I guess, both in Beijing and in New Delhi is to prevent a wider conflict between the two. Now, Avinash, I'm intrigued why the two countries don't get on better, because when you look at certain things on the face of it, you know, for example, their historical experiences of colonialism, their affinity as both relatively ancient civilizations, the influence of Buddhism, and today, their relatively strongman leaders, you think those similarities would maybe help India understand China better. But why has it not led to better relationships? Is it just that we can't have these two powers too close to each other because there's quite so similar. This is a very interesting question, Cindy. Look, this focus on the top leadership of the two countries, coming together, working together, discussing bilateral issues, trying to overcome differences, even be open to compromise, 
whether it's in terms of territorial compromises, whether it's in terms of compromises along questions of trade, along questions of exchange between people to people, along questions of how do you play out great power politics and India's growingly important relationship with the United States. This indeed was India's vision of how to deal with China, especially under the Narendra Modi government of the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is a Hindu nationalist party. They did believe exactly what you hinted, that getting the two men together to talk to each other might actually be the way of letting the bureaucracies actually reduce the salience of friction between these in this relationship and actually give much more opportunity and weight to commonalities of interests and alignments. Because there is a recognition in New Delhi that you cannot continuously be at odds with China and grow as a power yourself. So this is a country you need to engage with. This is a country you cannot permanently, you cannot be ideologically opposed to in the way that we have seen increasingly in Washington, D.C. And unfortunately, that did not work. There was a lot of focus, you know, the visits in Narendra Modi's visit to Wuhan. There was a Wuhan meeting that happened, uh, Xi Jinping's visit to Mamalapuram in South India. There are a series of these bilaterals which happened. And there was tremendous hope, at least in India, that this would lead to some degree of resolution of some of the conflict. But that didn't happen. In fact, what happened instead was the two armies literally clubbing each other in 2020, in summer 2020, which I would argue was a watershed moment. Mm. I'm not a China expert, so I won't be able to comment on how big a moment it was in Chinese national and strategic calculus. But for Indians, that is a moment which is absolutely unforgettable and most likely, at least for now, unforgivable. Tell us why. Why was that particular skirmish so important? Because border skirmishes have happened for decades. The last time before 2020, fire, you know, bullets were fired between the two sides were in 1975. That's when the last casualties occurred. And the biggest face-offs, which led to kind of larger casualties and active conflict, was, of course, in the 1962 war between India and China, a boundary war, but also in 1967, right? The fact that the two countries were able to create mechanisms, enter treaties, they enter a treaty in 1993 after a period of kind of freeze in relationship after the 1962 war and 67th standoff. Those mechanisms, India believed, were functional, but they broke down in 2020. And the memories that really flooded back in Indian mind, both public and official, were those of 1962, that this is effectively going back to the 60s. And this is a moment where the Chinese have actually decided unilaterally, that they will be not open to actually engaging in fruitful dialogue with India on questions of very serious security interests to both countries. And the fact that 20s Indian soldiers died, this is something very sensitive. Uh, And this is sensitive. I mean, soldiers dying is sensitive and important in every society, Western or non-Western. But the fact that the current government in India, the Hindu nationalist government, has prided itself for being a muscular political party, a muscular leader. It was humiliating. It was humiliating. And this is something, one thing that they decided at that point was not to hide the casualties from the public. Actually, India went ahead and announced that it has lost 20 soldiers. And that actually had a very powerful effect in terms of mobilizing public opinion that Mm. This is wrong. And uh, unfortunately, during conflict, it happens. 
but we are with you on this issue. So they were able to mobilize public, martial public opinion. And we saw a very different sort of public signaling happen in China. In China, they did not recognize that some soldiers had died for a very long time, for whatever domestic political reasons that might be the case. So both the act, the incident itself, the lead up to that incident, in terms of diplomatic investment by India, in terms of the security investment by India in in, in that part of the region, uh, which is quite forbidding. It's really high mountains, naked mountains, huge sub-zero temperatures, very difficult to sustain kind of force preparation for on a, on a 365-day uh, basis. And that really shook faith in Indian public mind and Indian official mind that China is really serious about resolving bilateral issues and became hugely emotive issues. And that remains to be the case today. Mm-hmm. From that point onwards till today, India's position is very clear. We might deal with you as a neighbor. We might do trade with you as a neighbor. But this is a moment when you actually have pushed us into the Western arms, which we never wanted to go in. And that is something I believe Beijing has struggled to understand. The narrative New Delhi always heard, even at the peak of this crisis, but also after, is that India is being played by the Americans in picking a fight with the Chinese. Mm -hmm. And the Indian counter-argument is, if you think that we are doing this because of, of Americans, then I think you have fundamentally misunderstood what India stands for. And, and that probably goes to show one of China's biggest blind spots when it deals with the world is always to see it through the prism of US-China relations rather than relations between China and any other particular country. Avinash, can you tell us a bit more about what happened in 2020? You know, was it an unpredicted escalation, an accidental escalation, or did the Chinese side initiate? And when it comes to these border disputes, you know, you've already hinted at it a little bit there. The geography is quite difficult, isn't it? Because it's not like these are quite clearly delineated lines. You know, to pin causality for that incident has been really difficult for analysts and observers. Firstly, because it's very fresh. Second, Mm -hmm. a lot of the actual detail is still classified. But there have been some sort of educated guesses and Indian sides, some of the officials have come out and given interviews. So this is something really kind of uh, a live issue. So without putting too fine a point on causality, I think there are two or three things happen at that point in time. If you look at the wider trajectory of India's worsening of ties with China, especially on the border issue, I think that begins sometime in 2013, 2014, when there is there is increasing sort of, you know, tension. When the Chinese premier is visiting in India, I think this was in 2013, the PLA moved into certain sectors in Ladakh. And that was a very awkward situation for Indians to deal with, and of course, with the Chinese. And Indians basically told the Chinese that we will not engage with you unless those particular encampments that your soldiers have created in territory we believe is ours, are vacated. And that happened at that point in time. Fast forward 2017, three years into the Narendra Modi government, Indians see a lot more push by the Chinese in terms of creating installations, military, creating villages on the Indo-Bhutanese border, Indo-Bhutanese-Chinese trijunction. Politically, it was seen as a push to make sure, from Indian perspective as to why China was doing that, is to create a wedge between India and Bhutan. Now, India and Bhutan has a very complicated but a very deep relationship historically. On questions of foreign policy, Bhutanese rely on New Delhi in a very kind of um, asymmetric manner. Mm-hmm. And Beijing wants to undo that asymmetry and have a much more powerful presence in Bhutan because it's such a small but sensitive, strategically sensitive country between the two, two giants. 
That led to a standoff called the Doklam standoff in 2017, where Indian armed forces literally entered Bhutanese territory and pushed back the PLA, not using arms because the 1993 treaty between the two countries says don't fire with actual ammunition because that could escalate into a war. Mm -hmm. So they literally made soldiers forming human chains and pushing back uh, using, uh, you know, homemade weapons and clubs and uh, stuff like that. That, I think, was a watershed moment for the Chinese in terms of making sense of what India has become. And there was a realization that this is a country which is very willing to use force, even if in a calibrated manner. And I think that really set the stage for wider escalation on the boundary. It does not happen immediately. It takes three more years. And I think at least coming from the Indian perspective, uh, there is an assessment that the fact that Narendra Modi first, he won a very huge electoral mandate in May 9, 2019. And shortly after, in August 2019, India did something very significant. What it did was it basically said that the state of Jammu and Kashmir, now Kashmir is a three-party conflict between China, India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. It is considered mostly an India-Pakistan issue, but China is a very clear party to, to that dispute. And the government of India abrogated something, an article in the constitution which had given Kashmir a special status. It's still part of the union, but 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 special for historical reasons. And when you bereave people of that speciality, it creates a lot of resentment. And this was done in conjunction with arguing that the entirety of Jammu and Kashmir is Indian territory. And this not only includes the part of Kashmir which is under Pakistani administration, but also those territories which are under Chinese administration, the military administration. And I think that was viewed in Beijing as a statement of intent, that this is an ideologically driven agenda, which it is. The Hindu nationalists have always argued for a certain kind of territoriality. Perhaps China responded to India's political statement by actually changing the reality on the ground. Mm. And that's when you start seeing a very strong mobilization, very quick mobilization of the PLA, especially in the northern sector of this three-sector boundary dispute between India and China. And uh, a lot of active movement in terms of road building, new villages suddenly popping up on the border. And this led to India's counter-mobilization and an escalation of road building activity for better connectivity. And then it was really a matter of a small tactical trigger that could escalate into a wider. And that's exactly what happened, right? When the two forces are coming in, increasing contact with each other, the chances of actually, you know, in that heat of the moment, things escalating. And that's exactly what happened. Neither of the two sides went in. They went in expecting fisticuffs because that have happened, but they didn't expect it to escalate to a level where many soldiers on both sides would lose their lives. And we still don't know exactly what happened on the border because, as you say, so much of it is classified. You also mentioned the 1962 war, and that's the only Indian-Chinese war to have ever happened. Now, it's interesting that you hinted at this Indian memory of it as relatively traumatic. I think from the Chinese side, you know, the narrative goes that in 1959, India had given refuge to the 14th Dalai Lama in response to um, a Tibetan uprising. And the PRC at the time just thought, this is not on, right? This is not okay. And that was part of the trigger for kind of asserting its authority on the border three years later in 1962. So the Chinese side will say, we are the victims here. And they would also say that after the war finished, we pulled back from, you know, the territories that we gained. And so we are mature international players here. But what is the Indian memory of that war? The Indian memory is first of humiliation and loss, because 
at least in a military sense, immediate military sense, India lost not only territory but also prestige and lost lives. Simply a lot of Indian soldiers lost their lives in that war. It exposed Indian weakness at a moment when India was quite ascendant as a power in the international, especially in the Afro-Asian space, mm. the leader of the non-aligned and, and newly independent. Absolutely. And, and exactly, seen as a leader of newly independent states and as an ally of these states, as an anti-colonial ally as of, of these states. So I think that is a very painful memory for Indians. And partly it has always kind of been difficult to honestly assess what went wrong, which was which has led to a lot of blame game within Indians, whether it was then Prime Minister Nehru's fault or the Chief of Army Staff's fault or the Defence Minister's fault. Fact is, you lost the war. And that is something that people agree on. On the issue of 1959 and the Chinese narrative that you just kind mm-hmm. of offered very helpfully, Cindy, the Indian argument is that, look, the fact that the Chinese were asserting their cultural hegemony before their political and territorial hegemony in Tibet had serious consequences for Indian domestic politics. This was, if you look back to the colonial history, and this is something that Indians Indians will go back in history from 1959 and say that, look, Tibet was de facto, if not de jure, a semi-autonomous sort of a state Mm. before the Chinese really went for it in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and kind of really knitting together what the PRC sees as the Chinese nation, right? The one nation. And that complicates India's relationship because India had a very different sort of a relationship, which were built, of course, by the colonial uh, rulers, the British colonial rulers. But uh, that relationship had a very direct cultural link between Indians, right? Whether it was the spread of Buddhism, whether it's the relationship Mm -hmm. with the Dalai Lama, whether it is, you know, the general relationship that New Delhi has enjoyed with a variety of Tibetan and and other kind of communities in the north, it complicated that. Mm. And in a cultural, social sense, the... Tibetans felt that they gravitated south more than they gravitated north and east. Mm. And that's one reason why the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama wanted to come to India and secure support long before 1959, and India actually refused. And India refused precisely for this reason, that this would complicate Sino-Indian relations, which they did not want to. If anything, 1954-55, China and India had signed this agreement around around five principles, the Panchil, which was quite a mature sort of an agreement where both sides said that we will not interfere with each other's lives and respect each other as, as neighbors. And 1959, India believed that China's aggression in Tibet was actually an act in unfairness, mm. an act in excess. And for the Dalai Lama eventually to kind of escape those excesses was a natural thing to do. Mm. And once he had actually crossed the border into India, it became very difficult for Indians to say no, especially after the Kampa revolt in 1959, March 1959, right? He enters India sometime, uh, I think, 9th of March 1959, if I'm not getting my, my dates wrong, so I need to confirm that. But Nehru was not very willing. This was not India giving an open arms welcome to the Dalai Lama. But once you're there, India felt that the cost of sending him back in a domestic electoral sense will be huge. So you cannot. So you try to enter into a diplomacy and try to kind of use diplomatic channels and political means to resolve this crisis. But I think by that time, the PRC was in a different mental space. Mm. And the entry of the Dalai Lama also kind of made Chinese feel that India is working with the Americans or the CIA, uh, 
to really arm these rebels yeah. uh, in a covert push, if not an overt push. And I think then the landscape of misunderstanding and the landscape of miscommunication had become so vast and so deep that it just led to what was eventually inevitable in 1962 mm. for a full-blown crisis. And not just the American influence at that point as well, because the USSR was also a huge player. And that Russian link with India is something that we must talk about a little bit later on, because in that decade, the Sino-Soviet split has just happened. You know, The Chinese were not seeing the USSR as much of uh, big brothers anymore. And so they were relatively suspicious of why India was getting so close to the USSR and what was going on in Tibet. But anyway, that's... I want to say ancient history, but it's clearly not ancient history because it still colours the way that modern Indian-Chinese relations work or it sheds light on the blind spots of leaderships in both the capitals. Avinash, I want to also come back to the modern day and just talk about the more economics aspect of it because do you think that there's also, from the Indian side, an anxiety that China's economy has grown so quickly, so fast and so large in just the last 10 years, whereas India's hasn't really. So they've seen this neighbour which has relatively been on the same kind of modern history background, you know, freshly independent in the 1940s, 1950s, trying to deal with a huge population. And then China just goes whoosh. What does that do to the Indian mindset? I think that has only increased in an anxiety about China. The fact that China has tremendous economic capability and has demonstrated the will and the ability to translate that into tremendous military capabilities, and not just in terms of counting beans, in terms of how many tanks and submarines you have, but also actually asymmetric digital investments that Mm. they have made, whether it's in artificial intelligence, face recognition technologies, and technologies which were very new a few years back, but now are routine in some ways. That really has had an unsettling impact on India, at least in terms of its geopolitical calculus within the region. There is a sense that India's economic might is actually being used to limit Indian influence in its own neighborhood, right? Whether it's uh, the strong Sino-Pakistan relationship and the China-Pakistan economic corridor as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, but also in Indian Ocean states like Maldives, where recently a new government came after election and is very openly pro-Chinese, is literally pushing the Indians back and has mm. uh, is asking for Indian soldiers who have been positioned in Maldives during the previous administration to leave. And that is a big shift for India. That this is In Sri Lanka, we saw that happen. In Bangladesh, elections are coming in a few weeks and this is happening. Nepal is literally, the national elections happen on a China-India question today. So this is something which is quite new for India. Then this is quite linked to Chinese economic prowess mm. as it sees. Uh, So this is one anxiety uh, that India has in terms of China's very fast economic growth, that it is actually challenging you and your sort of hegemony in your own backyard and doing it effectively so. The fact that you have cultural and historical and social links don't always matter mm. when the appeal of a free check, or if not a free check, but a, a big amount of loan that comes from Beijing, mm. and that is hard to say no by all these smaller countries which are actually in need of finance, right? Uh, whatever the politics of that may be, it's, it just makes your life a little bit more difficult in dealing with your smaller neighbors. So that's one anxiety that it has. The other element is your own economic relationship with China. Now, this is, again, India's fundamental calculation. And I think this is this echoes a lot of the, of the questions that we ask in the West. How do you deal with a country with whom you're so economically tied? Mm. And there's an asymmetry there as well, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. India is much more reliant in terms of imports from China than vice versa. 
absolutely. I mean, the trade deficit is a matter of strategic concern for India, right? But it also, I mean, if you have such a huge trade deficit with the Chinese, that also empowers you in, in contra ways, right? But the concern here is that, look, it's not just the trade, but it's also Chinese investment. A lot of India's recent startup scene over the past 10 years has actually been done by Chinese capital. And that's mm. a very taboo topic, not a taboo topic, but there's a sensitive topic for Indians to recognize that, look, Bangalore, some of the biggest Baijus, it's a startup, right? Uh, Indian startup uh, with Chinese finance, uh, the seed corn fund that came for that, uh, one of the first unicorns, apparently, was from Chinese capital. So, so how do you deal with this dichotomy that you have a rivalry with your other neighbor, you have a military standoff going on, but you're also so economically tied with them? And in fact, your growth story, your industrialization moving forward actually depends mm. on deeper economic connect with China than the, the other, other, other way around. And I think that's something that Indians have struggled to manage. What has happened since this border standoff post-2020 is that India has streamlined the economic interactions between the two countries, wherein Chinese finance or trade between India and China will have to go through a one single window Indian governmental channel. Okay. Now, that gives Indian government a lot of influence over the bilateral trade, at least from the Indian side, which Chinese companies coming in, where the TikTok, TikTok is banned in India, mm. who is investing, which app will be allowed. Which So I think they're trying to assert, they're trying to streamline this relationship and make sure that at least they have control over the quality of that economic interaction, if not the scale. And final point on this, and I'll stop after that, uh, Cindy, is, is an element of envy, right? The fact that you mentioned that these are two countries which started together or at a similar they were at a similar place economically speaking in the 50s and this huge asymmetry now i think this makes indians envious that look you mm. have gone so far and it also generates questions that you know has democracy kept india behind it really is that a live yes, question uh, in india yes it's a question on which the sentiment public sentiment and view hasn't shifted in favor of autocracy thankfully but it's still a question that okay uh, you know we are basically a federal union and every different state has its own they have i mean state governments can take decisions on their economic affairs so you can literally do the para diplomacy with Indian states on economics. London can do that. It does that, right? But that also means that the kind of command and control that the CPC has on its economic uh, existence of China, that is something that no political party in India has ever enjoyed. Mm. So it's healthy in some sense, but it also makes Indian feel that it's stopping us, holding us back in terms of just meeting India dollar for dollar or yuan for yuan. Yeah, oh, that's so fascinating. And... In your way of describing the Indian experience with China as kind of competing, but also trying to collaborate, you know, it very much reminds me of a lot of Western countries and their attempt to navigate the, this modern relationship with China. So it makes sense why India is now being seen as one of the key cogs in this kind of countering China strategy that the US is kind of pushing forward. And Avinash, I just wondered if you could spell out exactly how could India help the West counter China? Is it mainly through economic means, bringing back those smaller countries that you were talking about? Or is it through military means, trying to control the region? Or what is exactly in people's minds when they say, oh, we need to work with India to counter China? So there are two elements to that question, uh, Cindy. One thing is the India-Western relationship. And one thing is the Indian approach towards countering China on its own merit. I would mm. be very careful into thinking or even phrasing the question in a manner that how can India help the West counter China? <laughs> India enough. is not there to help the West do absolutely anything. 
these are independent relationships. These are relationships which have their own dynamics of trust and mistrust. And I don't think any serious Indian policymaker, even though India is viewed, especially in the West, as one of those poles that you want to kind of prop up mm. to contain Chinese influence in Asia and Indo-Pacific, that's exactly how India does not think itself. So tomorrow, if something happens, God forbid, in the Taiwan Straits, I would be very surprised if India takes a proactive stand, which is quite overtly pro-West or pro-United States. Uh, and I think there would be, as was India's reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which everyone expected India being this partner, this democracy to support against Russia, which never happened. It would not have happened. Ask anyone working on Indian foreign policy. That was not the trajectory how it would have played out. It did not play out along those lines. That disappointment will reappear in Western capitals if there is an expectation from India to fight their battles against China for them in the Indo-Pacific. Firstly, that's not happening. India has its own problems with China and mm -hmm. can, might fight battles on that account for itself in a line, you know, with support of allies, uh, but not something that it will do for, for someone else. Now, on the issue of how India can actually counterbalance, not if we keep the question of intent aside, the question of politics or alignment yeah. aside, how can you actually materially counter? So there are two or three very important factors. First of all, it's the military issue, right? This is a country which has the largest standing army, arguably, I think, after China in Asia, in the Indo-Pacific writ large. So if you want someone to be able to take on or to kind of, you know, to bog the Chinese, the PLA down somewhere, whether it's in the mountains or elsewhere, it's going to be India. This is, you know, the boundary conflict, it's mobilized. Both both the armed forces are fully mm -hmm. mobilized, uh, you know, teeth to eyeball to eyeball, teeth, uh, you know, arm to the teeth. So this is one factor that keeps the Chinese busy in terms of a pure military calculus. So if it does, you know, the Chinese PLA high command will be considering the consequences of intervening or invading Taiwan of what would happen if at the same time something goes down south in the mountains with the Indians. So you have a two-front war right yeah. there. And that's a calculation that, you know, no, no military planner, it has not been lost on any military planner in the region or, region or abroad. And also, India is going through one of the most significant defense reforms post-independence. It's a very sort of, you know, the army has a lot of very old systems, ammunition systems, guns, and I think they're going through a lot of upgradation as we speak. It is also wanting to build indigenous arms industry and industrial military industrial complex, which will of course take decades, but the foundations of that have been set. Mm -hmm. A lot of investment in digital technology. And I do believe that even though China has a huge superiority in military might, India's innovations and India's determination to actually you know, position a lot of force to counter the Chinese in the mountains in the north has offered the PLA a pause. I do believe mm. that, uh, you know, had India not embarked on the kind of military modernization that it has over the past decade or so, there is a likelihood that the PLA would have been much more forthcoming in probing Indian defensives, which it has not, especially after that standoff. Economically, India has, you know, this is a country which is demonstrating a lot more promise than there were fears about and it is still a very attractive business destination. There's still a lot of demand. You know, even the U United Kingdom wants to have a free trade agreement. The United States wants to invest a lot in India. Of course, there are huge bottlenecks. There's huge reluctance. They're dealing with a very kind of messy democracy, so to say, a federal unit. But 
it is on the economic domain also, if not uh, fully counterbalance the Chinese, mm. it has the capabilities, uh, if you take a long range view, of uh, becoming a bit of a counterweight. I think Vietnam and other Southeast Asian countries have much more immediate promise, there's no doubt. But uh, if the Indians put their act together on this count, I think this will be in a long term sense, 40 or 50 years from now, this is the counterweight that will actually emerge in the region uh, to China. So I think those two aspects and the fact that it's actually politically quite quite united india is not mm. in, you know this is not a fragmented polity at all if anything very centralized the electoral aspects of this democracy are still not corrupted right uh, you might have an illiberal uh, government in power but it is not elected using corrupt means right they are still the, when the elections happen they are they are clean elections so this is something which is worth keeping in mind when we are looking at india the system is much more enduring mm. and that's why it's compared to an elephant it moves slow but it's still quite sizable and you don't want to anger the elephant <laughs> <laughs> and yes, and I see that elephant becoming more and more strong as well. I mean, especially after the pandemic, you know, you look at the Indian growth rates, it's been, you know, I think it was, it was 9% in 2022 and it's estimated to be 7% in 2023, whereas the Chinese economy has struggled to get back on track, you know, still at about 5% growth, it's, it has to be said. But then you look at the demographics as well, that India is a growing country, whereas China is staring down the barrel of a fastly aging country. I want to talk a little bit about the domestic politics as well, Avnash, just, just because you brought up this this idea of it being a stable democracy. There are problems with India's brand of democracy, aren't there, in terms of how domestic governance happens. And I, I fear that in the West's uh, attempt to have allies globally, some of those human rights concerns are being overlooked. I mean, you've talked, when we first met in Lancaster at um, an event organised by the university there, and I thought you talked very well about the assassination of Sikh activists about Modi's domestic turn towards authoritarianism. Maybe you can just repeat a little bit about what you said to me then, because I think that is often overlooked, that India is not just a straightforward partner. No, that's that's an excellent question, Cindy. And let me clarify, when I say that the democratic credentials of India are still strong and stable, I mean it in terms of an electoral sense rather than a liberal sense. So what we are seeing in India is a, a rupture between democracy and liberalism. Mm. This is not a liberal democracy. And the two can be separated. We often don't think of that, but the they two, can. The two yeah. can be. I mean, India is a classic case in point. If you want to look closer to home, Hungary is a classic case in point, right? No, this is is an illiberal democracy and the rise of the Bharatiya Janata Party or the rise of uh, Hindu nationalism is directly linked to the democratic decline or the liberal decline, I think would be a more accurate term, mm -hmm. in Indian national political life. Now, what this does to the country's international vision and its foreign policy practices is pretty significant and it's something that the world especially the, its partners in the west are yet to reconcile with because you know they see india mostly as a counterweight to china and less as a country which has its own ambitions at a global scale and there are two fundamental shifts that have happened in contemporary india under modi one is there has been a voracious appetite to actually intervene outside this is a country which knows that its capabilities are yet not there to revise the global order as it stands the way China is challenging it. But it's a country which believes it has the means and the tools to actually color the existing order 
along illiberal lines. It has demonstrated its intent to actually support populist movements in Europe and the United States and in the United Kingdom uh, and elsewhere. It is a country which is very actively aiding the drift of its smaller neighbor Bangladesh into an autocracy as we speak. This is a country which has very clearly taken a political call that, you know, you are at a moment, the India moment as we as they call it, where such is the appeal of India's rise as a counterbalance to China that it often almost gives the Hindu nationalists a license to interfere mm. or intervene externally. And this is also met with a moment where Western society and Western politics is at a very volatile moment, whether it's post-Brexit Britain, whether it's post-Trump United States, whether it's the rise of the, Exactly, even pre-Trump as well, right? So, 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 so they feel much more emboldened. And the second consequence of the democratic decline in India, apart from, of course, the marginalization of religious minorities, the Muslims, and various other liberal critics have been silenced in some ways, right? Uh, the media landscape is much more stifled and much more concentrated. You know, the ed editorial policies are now being dictated by by, by who owns the, the media organizations and who are often big corporate, very closely aligned to the government mm -hmm. in power in New Delhi. Apart from the domestic element of that, the second very serious uh, uh, consequential shift that has happened is this conflation in Indian official mind of the diaspora as a domestic space. And it's very Chinese. That's totally Chinese. <laughs> and that explains partly why we saw in the past few months, especially starting September when Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, went in its parliament and announced that there are credible allegations that a militant, a Khalistani militant, or a terrorist, if you ask an Indian audience, was... Uh, basically assassinated in broad daylight in Canada, and that has been linked back to Indian intelligence services. An attempt of similar kind was basically thwarted by the FBI in the United States and New York City. And even in the United Kingdom, there is ambiguity about what happened to one of the activists who pulled down the Indian tricolor in, you know, that was at the High Commission, Indian High Commission at Strand, when one of the protests played out. He died shortly after for medical reasons in Birmingham, but the family continues to believe that this was a covert hit by the Indians. And you know, we don't have actual evidence to back that up, but but there's ambiguity around that. So I think these two shifts that India actually is much more comfortable intervening externally, including in Western society, and the fact that it views the diaspora as a tool to do so. These are very consequential shifts. Mm. These are shifts which will have a direct bearing on Western social contract. What kind of contract does Whitehall enjoy with the, its public? Right. What relationship do you have with British South Asians? Mm. Do they feel secure being British South Asians? Are they more South Asians or are they more British? Those are the kind of questions which really come center for in this kind of India. And something which, you know, I think slowly, I remember in Lancaster that you mentioned, there was this whole idea of Europe uh, and United Kingdom awakening to China's rise. I think 10 years from now, there will be a similar awakening happening perhaps to India's rise. That was going to be my follow-up question to you. It's just, do you think London and Washington policymakers there understand India? I often say that they don't understand China, but do you think they understand India? See, that's an interesting question, Cindy. I think there is enough resources and there is enough talent 
within governments, I feel, both here in the Foreign Office or State Department or you know, DOD in the US or MOD here, to be able to actually understand the shifts that are happening in India. I would argue that United Kingdom has some of the a great talent pool in terms of scholars and practitioners who actually do focus on India quite intimately. And that's partly because it's still an open society. There's still mm. quite a lot of exchange happening between the two countries. Quite open exchange as well. Uh, and critical thinking, where, where there is a limit or a cognitive dissonance of sort, is not actually in the understanding, but that understanding translating into action. And this is where the fact, this very potent belief that India is still one of us. Mm. It is still a partner. That really kicks in. You do not want to annoy a partner with whom you have built a partnership despite what this country has become, despite your own internal challenges politically and economically, and despite the fact that China is becoming so assertive. You do not want to rock that boat unless there is a very good reason to rock that boat. Mm. So we are actually walking into crises which are already bubbling with this assassination attempt. Last year, there was Hindu-Muslim tensions between communities in Leicester in the United yeah. Kingdom. And this is absolutely not novel. This is unprecedented. And there were reports that a lot of the digital misinformation that fed that kind of intercommunity tensions came from India. Uh, okay. Or Twitter farms. Not, not of course, that's not government policy in India, yeah, but, yeah. but there are capabilities that exist in that space which are willing to exploit these fissures, societal fissures within Western communities, right? Diaspora communities in the West. So this is something I think unless there is a cumulative kind of, you know, something big happens. This is not a lack of understanding problem, at least not in the case of India. It's just a lack of intent problem. Mm. And finally then, Avinash, that million dollar question of Taiwan. You know, you've already talked about India's reaction to the Ukraine war and India's continues to buy Russian oil, Russian arms, whilst being seen as a Western partner. So what do you think India would do if China invades Taiwan? That's a question which I think is dominating every mind, security mind in the West and in India too. Look, the first, let me qualify. I do not think that Indians would want this sort of an eventuality to occur. I don't think India views a Chinese invasion of Taiwan as being in its strategic interest brought, you know, in a in, in larger strategic sense that, you know, that the Americans are fighting for, along with the Taiwanese or trying to aid the Taiwanese to push back a potential Chinese invasion. And that's largely because of the economic impact of that. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is a good learning experience for a lot of the global south, that it actually has debilitating economic uh, impact mm. on a lot of poorer countries, yeah. simply messes with the global supply chain. It messes with the prices of commodities, especially daily use items. So you don't want that happening. But if it does happen, I think the first reaction in India would be, apart from giving some anodyne statements against aggression, is how do we actually exploit this now that it has happened for our own national interest? And I do think there would be an evolution of Indian responses depending on which direction the war actually pans out. If they believe that the Chinese have overstepped and are likely to, you know, bear the brunt of this, you know, of this kind of an invasion. And the Taiwanese will be able to stand their ground just like the Ukrainians did with mm. the Russians, with American aid. That gives India an opportunity to actually demand more concessions on the boundary dispute with China. Now, that does not mean China is willing to offer those, those concessions, those compromises. But uh, there would be a desire 
to see how much yeah. you can extract from Beijing in that particular moment. And of course, uh, you know, if you don't make much headway on that count, then you can always tilt a bit more in direction of your allies, your Western partners, to aid their efforts in Taiwan, whether you do this covertly, whether you do, do this subtly or in a much more open fashion. Of course, it's, it's, it's a matter of choice and, mm. and context. But I think that is how the larger response systems, as I call them, over the first month, the first six months, the first kind of year, that's how it will actually play out. But if you ask me the fundamental question, who would India want to prevail in that kind of a conflict? I think that is unambiguous. It would want the United States to prevail. Mm. That bottom line desire, I think that also gives some a quality of endurance to India remaining a partner. It's not proactively or secretly desiring the West to collapse uh, in that kind of a crisis situation, even if it does not openly come out in support of that. So that is something, I think those are the two or three different trajectories in which uh, India will kind of evolve its response. And a lot of it will depend on how, how the Chinese react to Indian overtures too. Mm. I mean, I think that sounds totally shrewd. <laughs> Avinash, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. No, thank you for having me here, Cindy. It's an honour to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers, wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.